very good clapping. <laughs> oh, should we just tell them, John? All right. I'm having hello. a stressful day. I'm having a stressful day. Hello, this is We Are History. And I know the last few episodes have started with us going, we're tired and we're stressed. And today, I think, it's possibly the most tired and stressed that I've recorded. Oh, probably. Angela, you should, be, you, should be, you should be resting on your laurels. I've just, <laughs> I've just caught up with you on House of Games. What a star oh, you? you were. Oh, oh yeah. I recorded it. You're just walking it. You're just smashing it out of the park everywhere, every night. Fantastic. Oh, well, you know, it's about time I was good at something, John. You know, no, I mean, people kept saying, I got so much grief on social media going, why don't you let the others have a go? Why don't you just let them answer some questions? I was like, you don't understand how games work. Oh, it's also, it's a, it's yeah. a quiz and a pre- press the buzzer when you know, oh, I better not. I'll let, one, I'll let the man do it. It's yeah, like, exactly. No. And it's, it's just that sort of, you know, yeah, how patronising would that be to them for a start? Yeah. And oh, you wouldn't say that to anyone in any, like, sport or anything, would you? You wouldn't go, um, oh, go no. on, let him have a goal. Exactly. Exactly. So, so well done. Thank you. Little apology to me on there, I noticed, for, for uh, getting Mary Queen of Scots 100 years wrong. <laughs> Did I? I've forgotten that. I'll get You're on. like, oh, I do a history podcast. I'm going to have to apologise to my partner. Oh, uh, it's not as bad as when I got... Did you see the episode where Kerry I got Godleyman. Kerry Godleyman's I know. name? Do you know what? Just That's the sort of thing I do. Head. Exactly the sort of thing I do. I mean, you, you know, you just suddenly get a blank. Yeah. But uh, you're a star, is what I'll job. say. You're a star. <laughs> you've now got gold toilet cleaner or whatever you've got with Richard oh, Osman's face. Oh, I've got my on. house full of Richard Osman's face. It's creepy, I'll tell you. <laughs> it's like you're some sort of stalker. Anyway, anyway Angela. Back to the thing in hand. Yes. Welcome. This is We Are History. I mean, people might have listened this far and gone, what am I listening to? I'm Angela Barnes. I'm John O'Farrell. Like our voices, don't give you a clue to which of us is which, but there we are, we've told you now anyway. I'm in a weird mood, John. <laughs> You're quite hyper, but I'm enjoying it. <laughs> I'll try and calm down, deep breath. <laughs> this week, uh, we are combining my favourite subject, uh, which, as everyone knows, is the Cold War, with something that John has chosen. And you've been keen to do this one for a while, haven't you, John? Yes. Well, with Angela choosing so many uh, military and spy subjects, I thought we could continue, Angela, to subvert the stereotypes. And I could choose another feminist topic, Angela. Oh, Um, good. Another chance for me to mansplain feminism to you. Uh, You're so lucky to have me to explain it. Yeah, it's like when I tell you how a hoover works, isn't it? It's that similar (laughs) sort of thing. That's the exchange of information we have, isn't it, John? I've been reading quite a lot about feminism this week. And, you know, it's not just about looking as feminine as you can. Uh, Is that right? Yeah, there's much more to it. There's this whole thing called the patriarchy, apparently. It's quite complicated. You probably wouldn't understand it. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, So... The subject, John, that you've chosen today, because yes. you're a feminist, um, is the Green and Common Women's Peace Camp that began in the early 1980s. Um, we've talked about it a bit before. I think we talked about it in our Abel Archer yes. episode when we were talking about the sort of proliferation of nuclear arms in the yes, 70s indeed. and 80s and how they were being moved around then. So it started in the early 80s as a protest against the deployment of American nuclear cruise missiles in the English countryside. So it was after those strategic arms limitation talks, the second round, where everyone, both Reagan and uh, the Russians had gone, I know we agreed not to do this, but we're doing it now, right. and started developing newer weapons and and moving them around yeah um and so yeah these ones were to be deployed in the english countryside and they very quickly became the center of focus for obviously for anti-nuclear protests in the uk um but also a focus for this 
new type of feminism that a lot of men felt was a bit threatening, John, because it didn't involve them dominating the questions at a meeting. (laughs) Every now and then, uh, my wife, Jackie and Lily, my daughter, take me along to some feminist book event for my continuing education, you know. (laughs) There's always one bloke who stands up and goes, yeah, as a feminist, I think that. And then his question goes on for five minutes. And I I just want to shout, mate, just shut up and listen. It's not about you. But then I worry that if I do that, I'll just be another man drawing attention to myself. And what if the two blokes at the feminist book event end up having a fight? It's so hard, Angela. I mean, what you're saying, John, is it's just so hard to be a man in a feminist world, isn't it? It And and we should spare a thought. For the poor white cis men. The poor white cis men in the world. So this top week's topic uh, is something I presumed that was in the shared national consciousness, you know, that, that everyone knew as a piece of you know recent history. But then I realised it only applies if you're old. I was working with a group of young actors uh, earlier this month, and they're all in their 20s. And we I mentioned Green and Common, and none of them knew what I was talking about. So wow. I thought, OK, I'm going to do a history podcast about that. And then the whole world will know, Angela. Well, a couple of thousand of them. <laughs> it's interesting you say that because... you. Yeah, I do think of Greenham Common as being so in the public consciousness. But actually, when I think about it, I'm 45 and I was a small child when it was on the news. You know, I didn't understand it at the time. So while I feel like it's something I lived through, which technically I did, I suppose, yeah, yeah. it was a, it was 40 years ago. <laughs> oh, Incredible. God. Yeah. 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 So my main source for this podcast is the book Common Ground by David Fairhall. Yes, written by a man. Uh, but uh, my <laughs> oh, wife is like, why is the book on Greenham written by a man? Fair point, but he <laughs> tackles that right at the top. And he was the Guardian's defence correspondent at the time. So he got all the leaks about the movement of cruise missiles. And he was down there. Uh, he was interviewing them all a lot. Mm-hmm. And I also watched the documentary Mothers of the Revolution, which I um, obviously purchased from an organic artisan video cooperative and did not download <laughs> for Amazon Prime, I promise. No, sir. Obviously not. <laughs> Absolutely. One did of you those get a chance to see that video, Angela? Famous I did, did knitted. I mean... Uh, Shall I say yes for the podcast? Say yes. But say yes for the podcast. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. Yes. I've watched that as well, George. Very yeah. good work. Very good work. Angela. Very good research by my partner there. I've just had no time, John. <laughs> so anyway, by the way, Angela, I will say David Fairhall's book goes back to the last ice age at the beginning and how the landscape of Greenham Common was created. He's Thank done a Barnes. A He's man done a Barnes. After my own heart. Context is important, John. And if you're going to write about a place, you need to be able to locate that place in time it's and in geography the, I'm it's with about it. tectonic plates moving and ice Brilliant. sheets and it's like oh Angela will love this bit <laughs> <laughs> I'm only going back to the second world war um which was a big war against Germany and Italy and Japan you never hear about it these days but apparently <laughs> it was quite a big deal thanks for explaining that <laughs> yeah um <laughs> Uh, Green and Common was turned into an airfield um, due to its sort of geography and it's being flat, long sort of... You know, we should shape. say where it is. We oh, it's in Berkshire, near Newbury. Yeah. Sort of your neck yeah. of the woods, isn't it? Yeah, Berkshire is where I'm from. Berkshire born, Berkshire bred, strong in the arm and thick in the head. Um, <laughs> M4 corridor now, Kennet Navan Canal, you know. Um, mm. A bit further west of where I'm from, but yeah, that's sort of, it's sort of um, posh Berkshire. So the Common was turned into an airfield in the, in the beginning of the war. And then the RAF base was leased to the American Air Force in 1942. And on the eve of D-Day in 1944, Dwight Eisenhower visited the troops there and gave a famous speech in which he told the troops, the eyes of the world are upon you. I mean, that wasn't the whole speech, was it? That's just the most famous line. (laughs) Probably, I don't know. (laughs) Maybe it's like the red chair on Graham Norton. You know, he just wasn't interested enough. So that's all he got to say. (laughs) That's that's probably (laughs) what happened, Angela. (laughs) So, So at the end of World War II, the Americans left. 
and it was hoped that the airfield could then return to being common land because that had been its historic status, as you'd know if you read the book from the beginning, John. Yes, um, yeah. But then, of course, as we know, straight after World War II, the Cold War starts hotting up or cooling down, however you look at it. And so in 1953, um, the Russians have got the bomb by then, so there's a increased tensions, and the Americans returned. Yeah. I'm not the same ones, obviously, because they didn't want anyone noticing that half the eight-year-old kids in the village looked exactly like them. <laughs> look, mummy, <laughs> why is that American who was here eight years ago look just like my little brother? No, it was oh, no, a different don't look away, darling. Oh, it's just coincidence, darling. <laughs> yes. Oh, how funny. Oh, um, dear. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so throughout the sort of 50s, 60s, 70s, Greenham Common remained a US airbase. Little bit of the United States in rural Berkshire. Uh, only dollars were accepted in the stores. Huge planes would take off from time to time, just to remind the Soviets which country to bomb should war happen to break out. Um, but in the late 1970s, as you said, uh, Angela, NATO made a decision that it was time to upgrade its nuclear arsenal. The old post-war atom bombs were looking a little bit rusty. Mm-hmm. Um, and the world needed another arms race because all the other ones in history had all ended so well. Oh, God. It's a, it, just a little moment there, John, of just thinking of, obviously, Where we're we recording are now. this three yeah. weeks into the... Um, mm. Only four weeks, isn't it? Nearly Russian invasion of Ukraine, and it suddenly all feels very yeah it's back all, with yeah, us again, I doesn't know, it? I know. It's um, just the fear of um, mad people with nuclear bombs. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So with this renewed arms race, the one in the late seventies, early eighties, yeah. um, came a revival, obviously, of this anti-nuclear movement that had been around before. The ban the bomb had been a popular progressive cause in the fifties. The marches from Trafalgar Square to the Atomic Weapons Research Centre in Aldermaston, also in Berkshire. It's about fifty miles away from yeah, right. yeah. It's quite a hot spot, old Berkshire, wasn't it? In this, yeah, it was, uh, yeah. Moment, so, yeah. yeah. Um, and the march included Michael Foote and a young Eric Idle and a teenage Rod Stewart. Yes, yes. Um, then they got to Aldermaston. Don't pop your crisp bag. That's not a funny joke. Oh, oh God. <laughs> yeah. So, I just I mean, wondered course... if uh, Rod Stewart was like filling in the potholes on the roads as he went. Oh, yeah, yeah. Did you see that this week? I did. Yeah, with his high-vis jacket on. Amazing. <laughs> uh, somebody did, I can't remember who it was, but somebody on telly said, um, oh, it's Frank Skinner, I think. Um, yeah, he um, used the gravel that he uses to gargle with. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Very good, very good. Um, you know, the peace movement in the 60s and 70s, of course, had been much more focused on Vietnam. So it's not until the next generation of nuclear weapons coincided with the election of Reagan and Thatcher and that heralded a much more hawk like rhetoric. Uh, and then the fear of nuclear war raised its ugly head again. I was just a young man. And, um, you know, this became my sort of big cause that I was really interested in. The government's preparation for all out nuclear war, I remember this, it's pretty thorough. They produced a leaflet, Angela. Oh, well, John. Funny we mentioned this now, because I and I swear to God, I haven't done this because we recorded this podcast, but I can literally reach across my desk and there it is. Oh, wow, um, fantastic. You should read that out. I am, protect and survive. Protect and survive. I am right now, I'm working on a, um, a, a documentary about Cold War stuff because it's mine. Oh, you right. Know. And uh, I've just written the, the treatment and everything I've been working on. So all my stuff is right here next to me. I've got a CND Look at that, a 1981 CND campaign activities map. Fantastic. See, that all Maybe, sorts uh, of my little pile of stuff I probably on here. some of those demos, Angela. Yeah, you probably were. This was, I think it's 1981 that's from. Look at yeah. that. Um, and it's got a map of where all the... I mean, it's like I've done this on purpose and I haven't. It's they were great, just there no. for something else. But um, Oh, yeah, I remember that map. I've just got showing it. Like, have you got the same one? There we are. Yeah, yeah, it's, Nuclear Britain. Yeah, it's got yeah. Faslane and sort of Aldermaston. It's got Aldermaston all the bases and, that they yeah, knew about Greenham. on. Um, Molesworth, all that. Yeah. yeah. 
So there you go. Blimey. There we go. Good work. Um, it's great, great radio. This. Look I've at also, you, I've, I know it's great for. Part, I've also got a copy here of When the Wind Blows by Raymond Briggs. But anyway. Oh, I just bought that this week. I bought that Did this week you? from my American friend. Oh, yes, that's he's my. Writing a graf- he's writing a graphic novel. He's ah. writing a graphic novel, so I bought him that as a good British my, classic, isn't it? It really is. My um, second edition uh, from wow. 1983. Oh, when is. the wind blows by Raymond Briggs, everyone. It's yes. a great graphic. It's just what, yeah, what don't now don't do call. what my family did and bought it for me thinking it was a kid's book because it isn't. It's harrowing. <laughs> although, although rather like the snowman, they do melt at the end. So, oh, God. Um, <laughs> Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> it was going to a happy ending. Oh, anyway, so, anyway. So tell us about the pamphlet. Yes, I will. And, and interestingly, this time as well, another parallel, I think, with now is, of course, in 1979, tensions were high again because... Um, I don't know, you might have already just said this, but because Russia had invaded Afghanistan. Oh, no, right? I didn't so, mention that. No, no, that um, was a hotting up, of the, hotting up of the Cold War, cooling yeah, down the Yeah, so Cold War. there's a, another yeah. sort of parallel with how we're all feeling a little bit tense at the moment. So, yes, the Protect and Survive, it was the official government pamphlet on what to do in the event of nuclear war. It didn't fill you with confidence. Um, it was a sort of... If, and what it, what, it was originally a load of videos. We, we've done a podcast episode about this as well, about the Fallout Shelters one. I think we talked quite a lot about Protect and Survive. Um yeah. But, you know, it it was initially supposed to be just videos and then they produced the pamphlet to go with it. And it's basically if a nuclear bomb lands in your garden, make sure you're wearing sunglasses and try to look away. Oh, that's um, right. You know, they told you to basically, one of the things they told you is like paint your windows with white paint. Right. Um, I don't think it did and anything. Reflect- I just meant it, it meant your neighbours couldn't see you while you were shitting in a bucket. Um, <laughs> but I, yeah, it, it was lovely. just, it's pretty grim. All of it. Pretty grim. Yeah, no, um, I'm, tra- I'm, I'm changing the podcast settings to explicit for this week now, Angela. <laughs> one of the things, yeah, I think you'll have to. Well, one of the things that makes me, because they, they also, there was a lot of talk in the 80s, we remember. And um, actually, John, as a little aside, this is kind of what I've written about for the Now Show this week. So this is oh. why this, this is also oh, biting my head, head right now. Like the four minute warning was something we used to talk about a lot yes. in the 80s. You hear people talk about, well, what would you do if you hear the four-minute four minute warning? Yeah. And it used to make me laugh because people would always say sex, right? And I'm like, I well, don't know. I can, I can last I that long. Well, A, I'm not sure if I'd really be in the mood <laughs> no, at that true. point. And secondly, there's going to be a lot of disappointed people when they work out that Viagra takes 20 minutes to kick in. You know? Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's basically four-minute warning, make some sandwiches, head down to the cellar, wasn't it? That was it the was. Sort of, uh, that was the sort of... Yeah. Best. I mean, there's a theory that's quite interesting. There is a theory that because a lot of it was about, you know, taking your doors off their hinges and making a an inner refuge in your house yeah, that yeah. you would then get into with all your family and the pets and everything else. And, this. and one of the theories is that obviously that wasn't going to do you any good, but it just meant that in the aftermath of the nuclear war, you'd basically created your own funeral pile. Oh, my God. And so they wouldn't have had to, you know, because otherwise like a, there's a lot of yeah. bodies to deal with. Sounds um, like a little conspiracy theory. It does sound like a little conspiracy theory, but it's... But uh... talk of four-minute warnings on the radio, <laughs> and an ordinary woman in South Wales was listening to her, a woman called Carmen uh, Thomas, I think mm. that might be a married name, I think she might be Carmen Cutler then, recalled thinking that four minutes would not be enough time to get to her children at school. And she thought, how could we even tolerate uh, the possibility that we could all be wiped out by someone in a faraway country pressing a button? Mm. So uh, there was a group of women in South Wales talking about this. Helen John decided to call a public protest meeting in a hall opposite the railway station in her home in South Wales. She'd never done anything like this before, but she invited a a local anti-nuclear campaigner, Anne Pettit, from Carmarthen. Mm -hmm. And from these women emerged this plan to march all the way to the United States Air Force Base in Berkshire, where the next generation of missiles was scheduled to be delivered. They weren't there. They were coming in a couple of years. And so these women went, right, we're going to march there. Uh, We've got to do something. 
no, having no idea where this was going to lead, you know. Yeah. So 27th of August, about, I think it was 36 women set off on foot to walk all the way. I just want to read you this little uh, bit from uh, Common Ground because it made me laugh. Um, Helen recalls returning from a supply trip in their van with another woman who vehemently opposed any male involvement to find two of the men right at the front carrying the Women for Life on Earth banner. And she screeched to a halt and said, stop, give that banner to the women, get to the back and don't ever let me see you at the front again. Um, but the banner is heavy, the men explained. And the women are strong, came the authentic feminist reply. <laughs> Fantastic. Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. So it's we're summer of 1981. Yeah. Uh, the news is all about Lady Diana's wedding to Prince Charles. Um, as a girl who would have been, what, four then? I'd say I was pretty much more into Diana than Greenham. As a four-year-old girl, a princess was getting married, mate. What are you going to do? <laughs> yes, fair enough. The rise of the Social Democratic Party and the death of IRA hunger strikers. So yes. there's a lot going on in the summer of 1981 and nobody is really that interested in 36 women walking over the Seven Bridge with a heavy banner uh, that the men had worried might be, you know, they might break a nail on. <laughs> Um, the women, are, yeah, the women have found that CND actually, CND, the campaign for nuclear disarmament, mm. their national leadership were not particularly interested at this point, and they struggled to get any serious media coverage. Some of them, you know, walking with their babies or pushing children in prams. It was the end of the school holidays, and they just, you know, some of them, some of the mothers just planned to march part of the way and head home again. But the spirit and sort of camaraderie was such that they kept on going. They stayed in. Uh, Places along the way that they contacted the Labour Party or local CND groups. And after 10 days, they finally got to RAF Greenham Common in Berkshire. And they went up to the gates really early in the morning. And the solitary uh, military policemen on the other side thought they were the cleaners. Well, it's different time, John. I mean, <laughs> we're in the early 80s. Women turning up at a nuclear base is a fairly reasonable assumption of the time, isn't it? Yeah, they I suppose so. A lot of women probably working in those environments. Give these silos a bit of a dusting before the nuclear weapons arrive, love. You know, get the Mr. Sheen out. We don't want to show yeah. ourselves up when they get yeah, here. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so the women, they get there and they're not really that sure what to do when they get there. Are they? So yeah. one of them reads out a, a proclamation to the solitary policeman who's on guard. He's probably a bit bemused by it all. Yeah, but a bit um, of an anticlimax, really, yeah. Yeah, I mean, several of them had thought to buy padlocks and chains at their last stop. They must have stopped at a B&Q or something on the way. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and so there start... was a and q back then, Angela. Oh, no, I'm just going to jump in there. Texas Home Care. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Remember well, Texas Home Care, yeah. goodness me. Um, so, yeah, they, they started chaining themselves to the gates of the airbase um, in the spirit of the suffragettes, I suppose. They're sort of yeah. channeling, right, what, what would people what would they have do? done in the past? What would the suffragettes yeah. do? Um, and again, this sounds like it's upping the tension, but it's in the middle of nowhere. This wasn't in a city with passers-by or... Yeah. Um, there's one policeman, like you say, just looking on a bit bemused and nothing happened. They just waited ages for someone to react to this dramatic gesture, but no one did. Yeah, so apparently another policeman comes along and advised them to move on. And this is a bit grim because it was Saturday night and the Jack Daniels would soon be flowing and they might get oh, raped sh- by American servicemen. This is what the actual uh, copper said. Hard to imagine such backward police attitudes today, oh, he said okay. ironically. Um, and then finally, the US base commander turned up, who was apparently furious, and he said he would like to machine gun the whole lot of them, um, which is uh, very democratic of him. Mm. And he says, as far as I'm concerned, you can stay there as long as you like. 
The women looked at each other and went, oh, there's a thought. <laughs> and they decided there and then that's what they were going to do. Um, so, you know, this is the moment then uh, that a one-off demonstration, you know, turned into an open-ended campaign, again, quoting from the book. I've always felt we owed that American commander a huge debt of gratitude, Helen John says. Without his contemptuous dismissal, we wouldn't have stayed. I had five kids to get back to. So wow. amazing, really. That um, is amazing. And they were just treated like silly little girls, the way they yeah. talked to them, you know, not people with legitimate right to protest. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and that, I mean, good yeah, on that. And that whole about thing it. about, yeah, the policeman advised them to move because the GIs might rape them when they're pissed, not... God, it's I mean, just it's incredible, isn't it? And it'd be your yeah. own bloody fault, love, if they well, that's did. Sort of what you know, that's implying, what yeah, they're yeah, saying, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so there was nothing pre-planned about the peace camp that, no. that came about. It was this spontaneous decision that came out of a feeling that somehow the march wasn't enough and, and this helpful suggestion from the camp commander. So they were like, right, fine, we'll stay here. And those that were married or had kids, they had to ring their husbands, tell them they weren't coming home. Um, which I imagine in the late 80s probably didn't go down yeah, very 80s, well, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, early 80s, sorry, I just yeah, say late yeah. 80s. Um, yeah. yeah, probably didn't go down very well. You know, did they left enough casseroles in the freezer for them to defrost? <laughs> I, know. I yeah. don't know. Did they? And um, yeah, they made these improvised shelters. They bent branches over from trees and covered it with polythene and cooked food over campfires and just waited to be noticed. Yeah. And, and you know, as like Helen John, that one I quoted, she had five kids at home it did end her marriage. You know, she had to make a choice between campaigning for peace on earth or going back and fulfilling the society's expectations of her as a mother. And she chose to campaign for peace. There's uh, sort of you know. parallels here, aren't there, with all, with Agent Sonia, when you think yeah. about it. You know, having to make, yeah. okay, whatever you think of her politics in hindsight, but, yeah. you know, having to make that decision of going, well, it's either, you know, my duty to look after these five children in this moment or the rest of, children for the rest of the future of humanity exactly yeah you know yeah. that that's yeah. a and, and to be vilified for making the decision that she did is quite something isn't it because yeah. you're, you know being a bad mother is the worst thing that you can society do regardless can... of what good you're trying to do yeah yeah so i mean again this was a uh spontaneous thing so they didn't really have a long-term plan but they stayed there they camped there they uh, had uh, supporters brought food and firewood uh, they bought tents and sleeping bags. And December, which is, you know, three months later, uh, the woman took their first direct action, which was to try and prevent the sewage pipes being laid. And then in January, Newbury District Council, conservative, um, served a legal notice uh, with the intention of evicting them from what is uh, common land. In fact, the entire air base was built on common land, but I'm not sure the bailiffs were planning to evict the American bombers at the same time. Yeah, funny that. In that film I watched, Mothers of the Revolution, you can see the aggression uh, of the bailiffs. They burn their shelters, they roughly drag the women away, they use extreme force in the face of passive resistance. It's pretty scary what the women had to uh, endure. Um, this was common land that was leased to the Ministry of Defence, but another strip of land was leased to the Ministry of Transport for the road, so whenever they were evicted, they simply move across the other bit of land and jump back and forth between the two. Right, so when they uh, got evicted from one, they'd go to the other. Yeah, and there's nothing yeah. they could do because the bailiffs were only re representing the MOD, not the Ministry of Transport. So, I mean, it was a fact the, the the warning that they were going to be evicted is what made the final decision to make them become a women-only camp because they thought there's going to be a clash here. We definitely don't want loads of blokes getting all macho and fighting the bailiffs. So yeah. uh, men were told they were not welcome. It wasn't. It wasn't. And, and also the optics of bailiffs fighting off 
using aggression yeah. against women is a lot more visceral, isn't it, than them doing it, with, as we saw exactly. later, with the minors. There's something more visceral about them doing Absolutely. that to women that really got their point across, that they were peaceful protesters. So, and, and that really became the defining brand of the peace camp then, didn't it? The, yeah, the yeah. one thing that everyone knew about Greenland and Common Peace Camp was that it was women only. Um, and this was a women only space, and which of course wound up just about every man in the country, even if they had absolutely no interest in sitting in the mud in Berkshire in the rain at all. Um, they weren't allowed to, and that's just not fair. Imagine having spaces where you're just not allowed to be. Oh, what <laughs> must that feel like? I can't imagine as a woman what that would feel like. It's just, just so, oh God, I get so mad. But, <laughs> but, but considering that the women spent their days sitting around a campfire, it would have been too hard for the men not to put themselves in charge of the barbecue, I think. That's, that, was the, <laughs> that was the thinking behind it. But I imagine there were a lot of men as well in organisations like CND or, you know, other, that also were angry about this, you know, that they were... Oh, yeah, very much so. Suddenly it wasn't of... allowed to be about them, you know? Oh, exactly, yeah. Uh, I mean, women-only space was quite a radical concept back then. Um, and I'd, I'd never really heard of it until Greenham. I remember being on a CND march with my dad, my old dad, who was like an old Irishman. And behind us, some demonstrators had designated their part of the march as women only. And my dad just kept stopping and looking up at some statue of Canning or, you know, Castle or something and slipping back into the women only section where they're all banging drums and, you know, <laughs> saying women are strong, you know. And the women will go, can you get out of the women only section? Oh, I'm terribly sorry, dear. <laughs> and it's like, and then he, and he'd walk a bit and I'm going, oh, don't call her dear. And then he goes, I'll move up a bit, love. It's like, oh, I'm not your love, dad. <laughs> dad, dad, I bless you, dad, but no. Yeah. Oh, dear. But there was a, there was a strand of political thinking in the anti-nuclear movement back then that nuclear weapons were penis substitutes. And this was the essence, you know, of the global arms race. Well, which is probably I mean, not, you know, it's not probably not miles worth raising. The truth, is it? I, mean, I don't know. I don't know. It probably, probably, probably wouldn't get you very far at the strategic arms limitations talks <laughs> if you made that your central point. I do remember Jeremy Hardy joke at the time, actually. If, if the missiles are penises, what does that make the silos? <laughs> <laughs> but it, yeah, anyway. Yeah, I mean, we can go down that road as a, yeah. Uh, the psychology the women, of warfare. The psychology a, of warfare, yeah. So not many women have started wars, John. That's what I'm saying. Not many. Um, it's true. It's true. So the women were treated, obviously, with hostility by these predominantly conservative locals. So they're not in a, a supportive environment no. for the people of Newbury. the town either, are they? Newbury yeah, yeah. and uh, posh Newbury with posh fox hunting locals and they probably thought they were dirty and immoral and should be at home looking after their children and not you know only speaking when being spoken to and all of that sort of thing and it's also a time when homophobia was rife so they were called lesbians they were refused drinks in the local pubs there was a march against them through newbury town center oh yeah if you see that on the if you see that on the demonstration it's the poshest march you have ever seen it's hilarious so uh, they were called Uh, they called themselves rage which was rate payers against greenham encampment (laughs) just like hilarious i can't remember why i post oh it's because of this documentary that i've been working on um, I posted something on Facebook because I've got a lot of sort of old radical comedians that are Facebook friends. Um, right. Like, and I, I posted to see if there were any of them that had done benefits for CND or or, or Greenham Common back yeah. in the day. Um, you know, and, and do you know a, a guy called Toby Haydoke? I don't know if you know him. No, he's a, he's a stand-up no. comic, but he's also he's a TV historian. He's very... If you were a Doctor Who mega fan, you'd know who Toby, okay. Toby Haydoke was. And he often writes obituaries and stuff for... for actors and things have got anyway he came back and told me that his grandmother during this period ran a 
like a haberdashery, a wool shop in Newbury oh. and at the time. And she was one of the few shops that let the Greenham women Oh, into a shop her. and support them and um and so they would come in and buy craft supplies for her which they would use to make banners oh, or yeah, whatever yeah. and that when the camp was dismantled they gave her um a piece of the fence with some oh, of their like oh, wool fantastic. artwork on it which she had up in her house isn't oh, that how fantastic that's amazing yeah um yeah because uh yeah there were there was there was one other woman nearby who had a house and uh let them go in and shower there use their her front room for meetings use the telephone because of course no, no, no mobile phones back then so but most of the uh, locals were very hostile uh encouraged by the daily mail of course, of course. uh because they're radical women with you know uh short hair and big boots you know the daily mail absolutely hated them would well, send yeah, in undercover a threat to the future of humanity exactly they'd women. send in a send in an undercover reporter who tried to befriend them and then wrote a really hostile piece you know tinkerbell is alive and well and living off lentil oh, soup or please. woolly heads in woolly hats there was another headline Jeez. i remember saying the, the irony of of the narrative of of these women being a threat to uh, civilized society when they're standing in front of fucking nuclear bombs. I, I know, like, I know, amazing. Do you know I mean, what I mean? I yeah, it's these yeah. women that are the threat to civilised society, well, were, aren't they? Not those things in those silos well, over when there. They, when, they got, when they got charged uh, in the courts, they were bound over to keep the peace. And they were, their, their argument was, well, I think trying to stop nuclear war is sort of trying to keep the peace. You know, I don't <laughs> want to be too pernickety about it. Um, just, anyway, yeah. uh, they, in March 82... Came the first blockade of the base by the women. 250 women took part. So their numbers were starting to grow now. I mean, there were, there were times when there's only two or three people there, you know, in the bleak midwinter. And Helen Johns remembers being there on her own uh, wow. uh, once or twice. But numbers, you know, start to grow. Uh, and then, you know, in the, at that event, there were 34 arrests and the women were starting to get noticed. But, John, as will happen... Yes. Uh, a few weeks later, something else, another military story took over the headlines somewhat yes, uh, in March uh, 82 or a bit later uh, Britain goes to war Mrs Thatcher was transformed from this at the time unpopular leader yeah. who looked like she was going to lose the next election into a dead cert to win a landslide victory <laughs> so Britain's pro-nuclear policy now guaranteed right? yeah, exactly all because right. of yeah. <sighs> and so Labour yeah yeah, and Labour had adopted this policy of unilateral nuclear disarmament. So before the Falklands, there was a real chance that yeah. these cruise missiles might never have made it to Greenham. That if Labour had won that election, yeah, that, that situation would have been yeah evaporated. So different. Yeah, I remember every yeah. every student household. So I was a university student at this time. I remember every student household had the "Gone with the Wind" poster of Reagan holding Maggie in his arms with a mushroom cloud mm. rising in the background. Thatcher was like called the plutonium blonde. She was the easy, you know, snap answer to anyone saying that war was a result of the patriarchy and male politicians. Mm. This is what this is what the feminists got back in their face. Um, in fact, there was a counter organisation set up uh, to oppose the feminist anti-nuclear movement. This Tory politician called Lady Ogre Maitland established Women and Families for Defence, and um, uh, and Whitcomb was an early uh, a member of that. Oh, look she was at even my an surprised MP. face. And uh, they managed to attract 150 campaigners to Trafalgar Square, where they sang Land of Hope and Glory. So well done then. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, well you know, but, but now it was starting to get noticed, you know? Yeah, yeah. The Greenham Common Peace Camp's getting infamy is 
famous yeah. still, yeah. you know. Uh, it at least made them the focus of this anti-nuclear movement and it got attention. And, and the nu- anti-nuclear movement, CND, all of that starts gaining popularity. Yeah, yeah. I, I, went on a, I went on a huge anti-nuclear march in 1982 and the, the contingent from Greenham, they gave speeches from the platform and they were like the celebrities on the march. My mum was part of her local CND group in Cookham in Berkshire, and she drove across the county to take them food. <laughs> My mum was very posh. So uh, I don't know if I've told this before on the podcast, but uh, she was completely unembarrassed about being posh, of course. So she would go up to these women <laughs> like sitting you, around. Not like me. So she'd sit around. There were all these sort of women with, you know, uh, earrings and feathers dangling through their ears and smoky jumpers with shaved above their ears you know my mum goes up up in her high heels like margot ledbetter from the good life going so um in the tupperware here you've got the vegetarian volavant but that's got fresh cream so it needs to be eaten very soon and all these, <laughs> all these, bless her, but, though. yeah i know absolutely bless her it's sort of great like, I mean, you go, yeah and, and it can't have been easy to have been from where she was from and be pro yeah the Greenham women pro- at that time, yeah, yeah, you know. Absolutely. She'd have these posh dinner parties in Cookham and say, oh, save a portion. I'm taking it to the Greenham women. <laughs> so Brilliant. I was always... <laughs> so, yeah, good for mum. Oh, your mum's uh, incredible. She was a, but she I was think a good... if your, your mum being like that in Berkshire is a bit like, you know, my mum being chairwoman of a local amnesty group, but in Maidstone, you know, oh, right. you just yeah, sort yeah. of go... They're surrounded by people with very different political views, but yeah, standing harder. up and, you know, it's much easier to be in an amnesty group in Brighton than it is... Yeah, you know. Yeah, quite. Um, quite. And all this time, though, the women have been relatively cautious and relatively restrained because all the time they've been there, they've not trespassed on the base itself. They were really careful to stay within the law because they're on this common land and they're not causing criminal damage or anything. They're not cut the wire. But after a couple of years debating whether this would be an act of violence and debating whether they should expect their fellow campaigners to get criminal records and risk prison. They decided they needed to up the ante, right? something it wasn't working. Yeah. And so they were going to start breaking the law. They were going to go over the wire. They were going to cross that boundary. That might be a good time to take a break, Angela. Yep, I'm going to go and cook some lentil soup and John is going to be told to leave the podcast and go run the creche outside. Welcome back. We left the Greenham Common Peace Camp debating whether they should occupy the base, which would be a whole new level of civil disobedience. But they took their inspiration for the suffragettes, whose uh, colours indeed could be seen all over the camps. Yeah, and we know that's the difference between the suffragettes and the suffragists is their willingness to break the law. Yeah. And so one of their first incursions into the base is they occupied the sentry box um, and the police. Yes turned up and told them to get out. Like, probably went, oh, come on, girls. Out you come. Uh, you know, and yeah. they said no. And it was a bit awkward, a bit of an awkward yeah. standoff. In the, um, in the film, Angela, you can yeah. see the bobbies climbing through the window, looking yeah. really cross. They've got their sort of stupid hats on. Um, <laughs> and it's, uh, it's like a really English scene of this, come out of there. No, I'm going to have to come in. Okay. It's hilarious. It's sort of comic. I'm going to count to five. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was like that. But all of this demonstrated, surely, that this base isn't, particularly secure right yeah absolutely that's that's my first when i hear that they were able to breach it you go wait a minute if a load of sort of peace-loving women find it quite easy to breach the base it's a base that's going to be housing nuclear warheads is that not a worry uh you know if they can get in surely so can terrorists i mean we're at the height of of ira terrorism on the mainland at this point um 
you know, so, yeah. so it's that, exposing that did, a lot of holes in, in the defence, right? But yeah. by doing yeah. that. So now these 23 women are in prison. They're sent to Holloway, uh, which was the same prison that held the suffragettes, of course. Um, and another camp sprang up on the pavement outside the prison in support of the women inside. So Fantastic. solidarity, so, yeah, a, so, solidarity. Yeah. Solidarity forever, yeah. For, and they yeah. can hear them singing outside. So imagine if you're inside serving time, you know these women are on the outside camping on the pavement in support of you. That's pretty powerful stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, then they, they decided to really up the ante. In December 1982, they planned a protest in which thousands of women would come to Greenham to embrace the base. This was the idea to link arms around the miles and miles of fencing. It was a very ambitious idea mm. to attract and then coordinate so many protesters. The women coming out of prison at Holloway said, if we can spend 14 days in prison, you could spend one day at Greenham. And this was before the days of the internet or anything like that, or email or yeah, texting. Yeah, how you so get the six, word out for something like that? Six people had to phone six people who had to phone six people. And this wow. telephone tree, just do whatever you can. And they had no idea whether anyone was going to turn up on the day in question. That's mad, isn't it? It's not like having a WhatsApp group and you can see everyone answer. No. It's, you just got to yeah, hope yeah. that... And so they really had no idea if anyone was going to turn up at all. And then on the day in question, one of the campers yeah. wakes up before dawn, looks out of her tent and just sees a row of candles glowing in the dark. And it's this coachload of women who come all the way from Scotland. Um, but they didn't make any noise. They didn't want to wake the green and women up. And it, it just seems feels oh, like such a beautiful so sweet, isn't it? thing. And then the camper thought, well, if this many are coming from Scotland to support us, then people are going to come from all over. And sure enough, 35,000 women turned up to hold hands across the perimeter that's quite that's fantastic isn't, isn't it, it? Yeah, and it's quite quite emotive quite emotional piece on the film when this woman talks about just looking at these candles in the dark yeah going, i bet just go they came they didn't want to tiptoeing because they didn't wake me up that's oh, so sweet. That's, <laughs> yeah and they they like tied souvenirs to the fence pictures of their children they wove spiders webs into the fencing there were different camps at different gates there was you know different themed camps. there was a vegan camp a lesbian camp a quaker camp the camps were named after the colours of the rainbow. Yeah, which ended um, up actually being the names the military used for the various gates. Um, but wow. yeah, and so they they were between all these gates. They coordinated the embrace the base. It was a big success. It looked great on the news and it got the attention. And then they decided the day after this protest, it was going to be blockade the base. And then the atmosphere turned ugly. And the police tactics were really aggressive. Women were mm. aggressively manhandled. One woman was taken inside the base by the police who shouted at her, poured co hot coffee all over her, what? threw her around the room and threatened her with further violence. But she brought charges and amazingly, uh, the judge found in her favour and the police were found guilty. So that's uh, it's amazing that, that, uh, that her is word amazing. was taken. That yeah. is amazing. But also you just go, we're how many years on? And the police know, are still apologising for behaviour like that know, rather than just not fucking doing it. <laughs> Um, the soldiers inside, the American soldiers inside, were under strict orders never to engage with the women or even make eye contact with them, uh, which didn't stop Ben Elton writing a novel about a Greenham woman having an affair with an American serviceman. Which did I, he really? Uh, remember read? He did. It's called Blast from the Past. I remember reading it a long time ago. Um, but uh, it's not as glamorous as it sounds, all this. No, life on the base isn't all exciting occupations and it's mostly a cold, damp camp in the British weather, right? It's yeah. hard. Uh, they've had their water cut off. They've got no phones, no cooking facilities except the fire. They can't collect wood from the common. Uh, soon the fires were declared illegal as well. So sometimes yeah, at awful. night, drunken local lads would come and urinate on their tents or throw stones at them. They were occasionally spat at, insulted by locals. On one occasion, they had maggots and a pig's head dumped on their makeshift tent. 
yeah. the whole thing just had to be burnt. It's yeah, you know they yeah. weren't just they were peaceful, but they yeah you know yeah the things it was they sad, had but to yes didn't mean through. they got peace in return. Absolutely. No. Absolutely. So they 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 continued with uh, their incursions into the base on New Year's Day, nineteen eighty three. A group of the women got inside the base and danced in a circle on top of the silo, which again looked fantastic on the news. I. Uh, I met a woman recently whose name I can't remember, which is awful, but I, I was emceeing a, a stand-up gig for sort of brand new comics yeah. in Brighton. And one of the women was, um, <clears throat> she'd been at Greenham Peace Camp. She talked about it on stage. And she said that she got through to the silo. with the, I just wasn't quite sure what to do next. And everyone was like graffitiing it. She drew a cat on it. <laughs> she didn't know what <laughs> well, else to great. do. Cats, I thought that's amazing. That's cats brilliant. are better than bombs. Cats yeah. not bombs. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So they danced in a big circle and the silo was like a big mound, you know, and there'll be a mm. tunnel underneath for the uh, lorries that had their cruise missiles on. And they danced on top and it looked great, again, great visuals. Yeah. The 36 of these women were in prison because they refused to pay their fines, as had the suffragettes. And as I say, the judge bound them over to keep the peace. They sort of pointed out the irony of that. Um, and then a few months later, uh, 300 women got inside the base dressed as teddy bears. It was wow. uh, it was April Fool's Day, so they had a teddy bears picnic. And the poor American servicemen weren't quite sure how to react to that. <laughs> when it was Halloween, when it's Halloween, they dressed up as witches and invaded the base. They were always like creative and humorous and, and, and over, overall fearless is the, the main well, thing. I, I think that is one of the things about the women's protest is that humour it had in it as well. Things like drawing a cat on a silo or, yeah, yeah. you know, being dressing up or just bringing in that just showing that yeah. while being strong that you can yeah. bring this humor with it that kind yeah, of makes yeah. more of a, an impact in a way and, a, mock, and a mockery it. of the sort of the, the soldiers on the inside that, that would obviously take themselves incredibly seriously yeah, and, exactly, and, exactly. and were just being laughed at really yeah <laughs> you know? i mean there were four thousand arrests in the first five years so they wow. really put themselves on the line yeah and it's, it's not like it it was easy to get in like i know we said before they breached security and that showed yeah. a lot of weaknesses, but it wasn't, they didn't just open a door and walk in. There were many barriers between them and the base. There was barbed wire. There were British military police. There was more wire with British servicemen. And then right at the end there, you had American servicemen. Instead of guard dogs, the Americans put some geese behind the rows of wires. They would start noisily honking whenever they were disturbed. Do you know, I, I, we went on our um, honeymoon last year to Norfolk Oh, and yeah. we walked past and it was a, um, I think it was like a breaker's yard or something or some sort yeah. of, um, pla- that, that was guarded by geese. Yeah, it's a thing. It was geese, amazing. Geese I'd never seen it guard, before. Guard geese are a thing. And they were right, like at the fence as we walked past, like, rah, rah, really, giving oh, it yeah. some. Well, You're these like, geese, oh, they these geese really well. this worked really well to start with for the, uh, on Greenham. But then the Americans <laughs> overfed the geese who got too fat to perform their duties. So it was like a... <laughs> Bit of a metaphor for America generally, I think. But, but on the other side, the non-vegetarians at Green and Common had some lovely foie gras. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so Michael Hestine, the defence secretary at the time, he had said, you know, he had said with these women, you know, repeatedly getting through the wire, that he could not guarantee that a peace campaigner would not be shot if they got close to the missiles when they arrived. So that day when they went in uh, as teddy bears on the 1st of April and into the base, there was also a massive demonstration coordinated with CND where 70,000 protesters, uh, men included, linked arms all the way from Greenham to Aldermaston. And I, was I at, remember I was, that being... I was, at that, I was at that demo. Oh, wow. And uh, I was, you know, we weren't allowed to be at the Greenham end because that was women only, but further down the road towards Aldermaston, we were welcome. And I remember being on that thing and doing... Let's all, everyone, time to hold hands is now. We all held hands and we cheered. And we saw the helicopter going over, getting the footage of us all cheering. And then I stood there for quite a long time going... Wait, excuse me, when, when do you think we can stop holding hands? 
<laughs> some some bloke with a beard and a cagoule from Milton Keynes. You know, I was holding his hand for about half an hour, and we're going. I wouldn't want to break awkward. the chain. It's a bit awkward. I don't want to break the chain, but do you think I could let go of your hand now? <laughs> That's the most British thing I've ever heard I in my know. life. Oh, God, so that was me. Oh, dear. Yeah. Now, of course, they didn't limit their protest to the UK. Um, yeah. A group of these women went to Washington to try and take Ronald Reagan to court. Um, they went to Moscow and met up with Russian peace campaigners, um, sneaking one of them into a meeting with a KGB front organisation who said there were no Russian peace campaigners. Um, John, I mean, who could imagine yeah, there that, there eh? such a thing. No, they'd be, the this, Rus- this, yes. Imagine the were... Russian intelligence officers saying that something that is happening isn't happening. Unthinkable. Um, so the KGB men there had a bit of a shock when <laughs> one of them was in their midst. Yes. He closed down the meeting. Yeah. Yeah. I <laughs> and, mean, yeah. Yeah, and they inspired women's peace movements all over the world. It was a new way of doing politics and a new way of doing protests. You know, many... Yeah. Women found their voice and their purpose in a way that probably wouldn't have happened if men had been involved because they would have just taken over. Or, yeah. and, and we saw it, didn't we, in the episode we did about the miners, you know, how the yeah. miners' yeah. wives later, you know, not long after this, um, were, yeah. you know, really um, taking control of that protest. This was some, there was some tension about that. For, but, you know, uh, some of the women who'd started from South Wales, you know, had been really grateful for the support they got from you know uh strike from the miners and felt that to not welcome those men to them to their movement uh was a snub after all the you know the the, the solidarity that had been shown but mm. you know looking back it was a unique way of presenting this campaign there were loads of other sort of marches and uh, petitions and organizations yeah, it wasn't like it was the it... only way that men could get yeah. involved in protest it's exactly just... exactly I mean, there was yeah. also the Labour Party, which had had its uh, policy of unilateral disarmament. And this was the big hope for, you know, uh, the cause at the time. Mm. But then in June 83, Labour was absolutely hammered in the general election. Yeah. And that was the only time a major party had stood on a platform of unilateral nuclear disarmament. And and this set back the cause of nuclear disarmament politically. But it didn't stop the women from Greenham from, from continuing their protest. No. And um, then finally, in November 1983... The first missile transporters arrived on a huge American plane and it must have felt like some sort of defeat, you know, yes. to the thing that they campaigned against it was just suddenly happening. And But as ever, the women were resourceful and they were inventive. Yes, they dreamed up this new tactic to expose the folly of the um, cruise missile defence system called Cruise Watch. Um, so we probably should have said how the cruise missiles were supposed to operate. Um, yeah, so, yeah, what the, idea so the, the idea of cruise missiles was that they'd be kept at Greenham on the backs of lorries under these massive concrete silos. But in a time of international tensions, what they called transition to war, the lorries would leave the base and just melt into the English countryside where they might fire the missiles from secret hidden locations in the woods or Salisbury Plain or, right. you know. So this was if the Russians nuked Greenham Common, the American right. missiles would still be intact so that millions of innocent Russians could be nuked as well. It was a very sensible plan, John. Yeah, I can't that see made sure any, All civilians were, <laughs> yes. uh, you know, annihilated. Um, yeah, yeah, so Cruise Watch was a coordinated plan to track and expose the supposedly secret military exercises in which these mis- massive transporters did mm. practice runs in the English countryside. And CND volunteers, including men now, 
Mm. They were told, do not get arrested on the road near the camp. There are plenty of other roads where you can get arrested. <laughs> um, but all these convoys were tracked and publicised. And uh, when they got back to base, the drivers were loudly informed where they'd just been in secret. And the servicemen were shocked. <laughs> they went white, apparently, that none of it had been secret at all. Yeah. Uh, one protester put white paint on the windscreen wipers, making visibility impossible, and that, just held yeah. up the whole convoy. It's just th these small acts that they... Yeah. Another woman actually got inside the cockpit of a lorry and sat there looking at this red button, thinking, what the fuck? Like, it's just yeah. right... It, uh, there it is. That's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. weakness of... of yeah, yeah. Security. So so that, that night, I remember that night when the cruise missiles actually arrived at Greenham, um, there was a surge of sort of anger by those of us who had been sort of active in the anti-nuclear movement. And a couple of my female friends went to Greenham immediately. And I felt, you know, I want to do something. So I was determined to make some sort of protest of my own. I was a you know, student in Exeter. Yeah. So I went out with a spray can. This, this, this story is in my first book. But I went out with a spray can and I sprayed all over Exeter. Jobs, not bombs. And I was like, on the bank on the army recruiting center. And it was like, there, I've made yeah, my, I'd, I'd had a, a few beers. See John. I had, a, I'd had a few beers and I, my mate was going to come with me. He bottled out the end. So I just did it on my own. And I told, wow. came back, I told my friends, they were like, wow, really John? And then they went out into town next morning and came back pissing themselves with laughter. And I was like, what, what? And they went, John, you put jobs, comma, not bombs, full stop. <laughs> <laughs> So it was like it was like I was going. Look, I'm terribly sorry about your wall and everything, but would it be all right if we had some jobs instead of all yeah. those horrible bombs? My, my, I know it's graffiti technically, but my grammar is impeccable. <laughs> yes, I mean, come on, mind. just coming up bombs full stop. So uh, forever <laughs> afterwards, I was had the piss ripped out of me by my friends for this. <laughs> And it still gets quoted back at me on Twitter. People go, it's a bit jobs, comma, not bombs, full stop. And it? you know, it's like a, become a phrase on the left. So there we go. I love it. But then uh, later on, I did go to uh, the other cruise missile base at Molesworth. I think it was, or maybe it was Hayford. I can't remember going to one. I remember going on this demo. I did a whole weekend of nonviolent direct action training. It was like, what to, you know, the, your one phone call to the lawyer, the, the lawyer's number on your phone, how to go all floppy when you're arrested and everything. And, um, we went up there, got a coach at six in the morning from Clapham Junction or wherever it was. And then it was snowing and we, we had to sit and block the base and we were all ready. The police were there and the um, the contractors had been given the day off. <laughs> it was like, oh, it's going to be a big demo. <laughs> so we're like, loads of police. We were all sitting in the snow, freezing all day. And they were going to go, you're going to arrest us. The police go, no, you're fine there. Carry on with your protest. It's like... <laughs> You've got well, to, I've, look, I've trained for this a whole weekend. No, you're I, fine. I've worked out who my phone calls to. I've, <laughs> I've got it all got, worked out. got my phone and friends said, sorted. I've got my... <laughs> Arrest me, you bloody fascist. <laughs> no, you're fine, sir. Bit cold for it, isn't it? Yeah, bastard. <laughs> Complete waste of time, Angela. Well, come yeah. on, John. Intention's important too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so now it's 1985 and yes. uh, Gorbachev, Mikhail Gorbachev, has become president of the Soviet Union and so now these anti-nuclear talks get going in earnest. Um, and in 1987, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty was signed to begin to reverse the arms race. This is all part of perestroika yeah. and this sort of yeah. liberalisation of the USSR and stuff. And in 1989, the missiles were taken out. Amazingly. Now that is incredible, but nobody had informed the women that this was what was happening. So when they see this huge plane landing and loading happening, they ran to the base holding a banner. And one of the servicemen said, what are you doing? You've got what you wanted. That's incredible, isn't, isn't it? Mad. I don't know what they must have felt like, yeah. So the last cruise missiles left Greenham 
1991. Um, and I, I remember that being, you know, I was yeah. older then. I was sort yeah. of, how old would I have been then? 15, nearly 16. And um, yeah, but at that point, I can remember it being yeah, the, sort, the of sort of victory. Yeah. 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 And some women stayed on to keep protesting until the land was taken back from the MOD completely to become the common land that it should have been once again. And they were successful in that as well. And on September the 5th, 2000, 19 years after the first women had arrived, the last green and woman women left the camps and the cattle was back grazing on the common and the perimeter fence was gone and the common was returned to the public. What an incredible, incredible yeah. story. And in 2004, uh, Gorbachev, no longer uh, in power, was yeah. giving a speech and he thanked the green and women specifically and a few of them were there when he gave that speech mentioning them and they made their presence known and he cited wow. them as a factor in raising awareness in the west and and, and of course in the east as well because it was reported in russia uh, yeah. that there was serious opposition to what nato was doing yeah. um and so you know for, that was amazing for them to actually talk to each other at that event um yeah. so that yeah so it's, it's an incredible story we've been talking about a women's only campaign i think this is a good time to make it all about me angela yeah Absolutely, John. I mean, I think we've had quite enough of the limelight for now. But I'll say, for me, as a young lefty student at the time, Greenham was really the first time I had to stop and think about my own privilege and the automatic advantages of being born male into our society. And, of course, my first reaction to being excluded was resentment and indignation. And I I, I was like, why can't I be an ally? In fact, I should be chief ally in charge of the peace camp. I've got this now, ladies. I can take it from here. That would be that was my that was my subconscious thought. I think there's a lovely phrase I heard the other day, and I'll get it completely wrong, but it sums it up so much. Is is that privilege? You know, you know, you're privileged when you feel that equality feels like oppression. Right. Yeah. That's classic. That's exactly. Yeah. I don't think I realised. I think I sort of knew I was privileged, but. Uh, but CND was my main thing back then. I hadn't joined the Labour Party yet, so I went on every CND march and I wore my badge every day. And here was the front line of the campaign. There was no place for me. Of course, I was experiencing a tiny fraction of the exclusion that marginalisation that women had endured throughout history. Yeah. But damn it, Angela, I wanted to climb the wire <laughs> and go all floppy and be dragged away the place in the news. And for once, it wasn't all about the men. So, but as I say, both the women in my university house went to Greenham and stayed there. And I was jealous that they got to go over the wire and invade the base and they came back heroes. And I just had to listen and nod. And when have women ever had to do that in history, Angela? Tell me that. <laughs> when have when we has ever that ever had happened to, to women? listen and nod and go, yes, well done, dear. So, um, yes. Yeah, to, 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 for women to have an active part in change without men going, okay, I'll take it from here, love. Yeah. Um, you know, to do the difficult bit or whatever is very rare, very rare. Um, but now, so, of course, I, I realise it was a masterstroke and, a, and it was a, um, you know, it was a worthy and necessary thing to do but i won't pretend i didn't it didn't rankle with me at the time privately yeah. yeah it's interesting you know and, the, and well done you for admitting that because you know it'd be very easy to say that you were just an ally and you were you know yeah. but you're admitting that that is a side effect of yeah. white male privilege is not liking it when you're not sitting yeah. at the top of a tree for a story you know and yeah yeah and that thing of saying these women weren't getting something you couldn't have. You were able to lead the charge in every other protest Absolutely. Absolutely. in the world. So that, but that feeling like you, that them getting that equality felt like oppression to you. And that's pretty Yeah, much. yeah. So um, just uh, when I was about 25, I met my wife, Jackie, and she, she was leading a strike of the uh, broadcast assistants at uh, Radio 4 at Broadcasting House. And I uh, went out and joined the demo and held a placard as one of the writers on Weekending. And the photo in uh, the broadcast, the union thing was me. 
holding the same jacket. It's like we're all women protesting about bloody uh, uh, secretaries, you know, being yeah. upgraded to broadcast assistants, uh, yeah. uh, production assistants. And there's my fucking boyfriend standing there holding the banner. So that's why. That's why yeah. this happened, you know. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, otherwise the man would always take center yeah. stage. Yeah. It's fascinating. And of course, you know, it was a PR masterstroke. It did give them attention when so many other protests were being ignored. And it transformed the life of many of the women who took part. Because A bit like the women we talked about in the miners' strike movements. You know, a lot yeah. of those women couldn't go back to their old lives. Yeah. You know, they'd sort of been empowered by this... Um, be, being at the forefront of these political discussions and uh, movements and... You know, you couldn't then just get back in your box and go, well, now I'll go back yeah. to being the good housewife doing as I'm told. You know, yeah. so it must have changed a lot of their lives forever. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, maybe maybe it saved all our lives if, uh, you know, uh, if it was a factor in dialing down the arms race. We didn't yeah. know about then, of course, but the world came very close to nuclear catastrophe in 1983, as you said, with yeah. the Able Archer Able incident. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's it for this week's episode. Um, thank you, Green and Women. Yes, thank you very much, Green and Women. And, thank you to um, my late mother for taking them salmon on crude to keep them going. I just love that. I love that so much. It's brilliant. And um, and we're going to do something we haven't done before, John, yep. aren't we? We're going to um, dedicate this uh, episode of We Are History. I'm not. I'm not sure how much of an honour that is, but no. um, we just wanted to acknowledge something really because there was uh, one activist and only one, but one never who did lose her life as a result of the protests and that was Helen Wynne Thomas. Um, she was a history graduate from Carmarthenshire and she was only 22 years old. Uh, she was struck by a police vehicle near the camp and her parents were pretty convinced there was a cover-up and proper police procedures weren't followed um, and they campaigned for a peace garden to be established at Greenham. Um, so we just wanted to acknowledge that Helen was there and um, you know this episode is for you Helen. But all those women were risking their safety, lying in front of vehicles or being forcibly removed by police and having their makeshift shelters burned down by bailiffs. It took a lot of courage to put yourself on the front line like those women did. comes with risks. And uh, although only one woman lost her life, others gave years and years of their lives to this cause that they believed in so strongly. So let's play out now with the song that became synonymous with the Greenham camp. You Can't Kill the Spirit. This is sung by the Dutch group Hey Pissop. Uh, that's all from We Are History. Uh, we'll see you next time. We'll see you next time. Take care. She is like a mom.